Hi there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan. And on today's episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about anachronisms in Dungeons and Dragons and asking questions like, does the existence of anachronism break immersion? Or is it just the very nature of fantasy that you're going to have those elements? And wondering where should we draw the line about anachronisms? All that and more today on Wandering DMs. Before we get into the conversation, I'll remind everyone that at the end of the show, as always, will be our after-party chat. Uh, that is a private video chat with Dan and I and all of our patrons on our Discord server. If you'd like to join in on that, you can. You just have to join our Patreon at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Join at any tier. You'll get an invite to our Discord server. And at the end of the show, a little after 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll be popping over there to chat with all of you lovely patrons. One of our favorite parts of the week. So we'll love seeing you if you can uh, join us there on our uh, after party uh, Discord server. Uh, so, Paul, what an interesting we're uh, obviously we're continuing to think about the 50th anniversary of original D&D being um, being released uh, basically this month, 50 years ago. Um, so you came up with this this thought about discussing all of the the anachronisms in D&D. What 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 yeah. what prompted this I, this topic today? You know, and I thought that would be an interesting aspect of the conversation is D&D is, in fact, 50, 50 years old, 5-0, 50 years old. So, like, what anachronisms have cropped up in the 50 years between when it appeared and how it exists today? That might be an interesting oh. uh, point to hit on. But for me, the, the, the inspiration for me is, frankly, um, two different movies that I saw over the course of the last week that both kind of made me start making me think about setting and and setting in a fantasy story and and anachronisms and etc um one is uh, i recently popped out to uh, the theaters the first time in a long time and saw poor things i don't know if you've seen that movie uh fantastic film I, i'm delighted that hollywood can still produce movies like that um so i definitely recommend go, going to see it i'm not going to dive too deep or i could use our whole hour easily uh, analyzing <laughs> this movie um have you seen it dan I have not. I, I, I can't oh. say as I have, no. Oh, definitely recommend it. It's a great, it's a great movie. Uh, what is the setting of it, though? And that was a thing that I was kind of scratching my head over because when I first sat down to watch it, I knew very little about it. And initially, as I was watching it, I would say, okay, well, this is like Victorian Europe, right? And then as yeah. the movie progressed, and it's kind of a very interesting, you know, suspenseful, weird, oh, gosh, it's really hard to... to narrow it down but definitely like some some frankenstein influences there right so that kind of period but very quickly as the movie progresses i went okay no i think i would recategorize it as i guess steampunk there's definitely yeah, right. you know uh it's that period right it's certainly there are horse-drawn carriages and elaborate victorian dress and etc but it's slightly different and there's weird inventions and it's definitely society is a little different than you would expect Victorian Europe to be. So it's, um, yeah, so it's just a little, right, it's a little off, a little anachronistic, right? Which, you know, in, a, in an intentional and interesting way. Yeah. Right? Um, and then just, just yesterday, I was at a friend's birthday party who um, rented out a, a very small movie theater with the idea of let's put a film on but let's make it something light and fluffy that we can just kind of have on in the background so we can still socialize and maybe chatter something we've seen a lot or, you know, we're not going to worry about missing bits of it or, or worry about talking over it. And the film chosen was A Knight's Tale, which uh, from, uh, you know, Heath Ledger from like 2001 or 2002, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. And oh, geez, it was um, that long ago. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's just a little, little old at this point. And, you know, that movie is interesting, right? Because it's, ostensibly about a medieval period and jousting but the anachronisms are heavy right they're yeah. they're 
a lot, very intentionally. And at first yeah. you might, you know, if you came into that movie, not knowing anything, you might start to like object and be like, Oh, that's weird. That's anachronistic. Why'd they put that in the film? And then soon you go, I did they not went so far in that direction. <laughs> they went so far in that direction. You can't yeah, draw right? the line. Like you have to stop complaining because you're just going to complain about the whole movie. Right? <laughs> you're like, well, that's not what the movie is about. And in fact, if I had to describe that movie to someone right now, I would say that's a sports film. That movie has more in common with white men can't jump than say Kingdom of Heaven or Lord of the Rings or anything between those, right? That is that is a movie, that is a classic sports movie in my mind. It is about a, uh, a an underprivileged underdog person who has a whole lot of skill in a sport and is looking for access and you know comes up and makes a splash and you know is maybe a little ostracized by the professional sporting community they're trying to break into. Yeah, very, very classic American sports film, in my opinion. Just the sports happens to be medieval jousting. <laughs> That's great. What a great, what a great take on a night's tale. Um, I, I think we can contrast that with something like I think the Last Duel, which is actually based on a historical event. Uh, if I got the name right, I think from some number of years ago. So I, so a night's tale I've seen right, and when you first brought it up, I said. So basically what you described is like someone could complain about it in this way is more or less exactly how I how I started watching A Knight's Tale, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And it's I, I, I think I did watch the whole thing on TV at one point. And I was like, I really don't like what this movie is doing at all. I really don't <laughs> like it at all. And then like 30 or 40 minutes into it, I'm like, you know, granted that it's executing quite well on what its goal yeah, is. Right. I don't agree with the goal, but it's executing very well with what it's what it's committed to. So I got to give it points for that. I would struggle to call it a good movie, but I would also struggle to call it a right? bad movie. It just yes, it is what it you. is. Yes, thank you, thank you. And you know what? It was one a of the among yeah. among the anachronisms is the music, if I recall correctly. Right? Yeah. It has a yep. whole lot of like yep. driving rock tracks. Right. Yep. And I'm like, I hate what this is doing, but but I like this music. This I, I, I will actually I will stay here just for the audio, I mean, nothing else. The movie begins like within the first five minutes there. You're at a joust tournament with the crowds of peasants and nobles and whatnot all stomping their feet and clapping their hands to we will uh, we will rock. Right. You, right? <laughs> you're like, what? what is happening here <laughs> right. like, okay right. that's yeah. that's the kind of movie it is yeah. like, okay okay fine i think you know again it is what it is and it's using it i think intentionally i would say like i think maybe somebody came up with the idea of like well it's we'll do a you know medieval joust movie but we'll it's it will follow classic sports movie tropes and so we'll slip in some anachronisms intentionally and probably someone, I, my guess is that someone involved in the film went, you know what, if we do just a little bit, people are going to bitch. But if we go way over, over the board with it and we just yeah. lean in super hard, you know, then, you know, they won't know what to bitch about. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Unless someone had a design sensibility and they leaned into it and good for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very interesting. Very interesting. So, you know, that, that had me sort of thinking about anachronisms as we see them in the setting of D&D. &D. And then we can, we can, you know, once I start to expand my brain around that and try and think about that, I'm like, I don't know, what even is the setting of D&D? &D? And, you know, is, is anachronism even possible in fantasy, right? As I was researching this and trying to, like, write up an, an intro for the video, I was like, you know, the whole point of fantasy is to give this feeling of other otherness or otherworldliness, right? Of like, it's like Earth, but not. And it's not in this weird, bizarro way that we can't put our finger on, right? Through magic or supernatural or whatever. Once you start going down that road, uh, is it even, is anachronism even possible? Like the whole point is to introduce things that don't belong, right? And anachronism, if we can agree, is a thing, uh, an idea, an object, something that does not belong in the setting, usually temporarily. Right? usually based on time. And fantasy, the whole point of fantasy is to add things that don't belong. So, eh. <laughs> is it still anachronistic or is it just the nature of the beast? It's a good question. And, you know, I tend to um, go back to the, um, you know, the, the, the heroic cycle idea of at least the place where the players are starting out um 
can be conventional and real world and historical. And then they go into a place that is supernatural and special and weird, and then hopefully come back to the place that's normal. So uh, for me, I tend to certainly be more sensitive. I tend to be more sensitive to the, the campaign substrate of if your village has, I don't know, printing presses and telegraphs, I guess I get a lot more bothered by that than if in the dungeon or the supernatural castle, if there's if there's something weird there. Um, I, that's, that's a great point. And I think there's this fascinating context to things, right? Like, for example, I, I think that in D&D in and fantasy in general, you see a lot of the use of magic to kind of replace technology, right? And we're yes. kind of okay with that in this weird way, right? Like, like you and I both have argued against and will, I think, still to this day, have a lot of complaints about the use of lamp oil in D&D, right? Like, I think we, we right. can agree that the way it's presented in the book is sounds like kerosene, and kerosene, we think, does not fit, is an anachronism, right, in the D&D setting. Like, it doesn't work quite right. So, like, weaponizing your lamp oil to light your enemies on fire, I, I know, and I know this, this is maybe a little controversial to our viewers, but the way Dan and I see it, no, it shouldn't happen. You can't weaponize lamp oil. But if you have, if you want to say, like, well, I take out my spell book and I cast Burning Hands, I'm like, yeah, sure, cool, yeah. Of course, you, you, you fire all over your enemies, absolutely. That's what it's for. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, likewise, yeah. Like, like, just light, right? Like, you know, we generally think the setting of D&D, light sources should be open flames, right? Whether that's a, a, a lamp or a candle or a torch, some kind of open flame. But then you let magic in and magic starts to solve all, some problems around that, right? Like, okay, you have magical light. Great. It's better than normal light because yep. it doesn't emit yep. heat or it doesn't combust your, your equipment, right? You can stick it in your bag. underwater. Works underwater, right? You can put your yeah. glowing sword into the sheath and thus douse it temporarily and take it back out mm-hmm. whenever you mm-hmm. want, right? And like yep. all these things are like, well, we're basically describing electrical light, right? We're, ba- <laughs> we're basically, we took all the advantages of electrical light and why we use electrical light in modern time. And we just said, eh, magic, right? And that's neat and interesting because it does subvert the setting until you allow it to permeate the setting, right? And then once your setting is like, Agreed. oh, there are just magical lights Agreed. everywhere, right? Like every, every yeah. shop, every house has a magical light in it. And you're like, uh, well, now we're just back where we started. I agree. Right, now we're just now we're just in that. modern time. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I got to point out Fireball and Lightning Bolt, right? Uh, you go back to Chainmail, right? The whole point to Fireball and Lightning Bolt were they would just refer you, they would literally just reskinning the uh, catapult and uh, cannon rules. Uh, right. right. Uh, so fireball equal and hit to a large catapult area and lightning bolt equal an attack value equal to a heavy field gun. Right. So you don't have to write new rules for it um, or exactly where all that stuff comes from. Um, true. I mean, I, it's, it's go on. No, complete your thought. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think like in order in order to have this conversation and, and I think I think one of the things we have to kind of establish is like what is the historic basis of D&D. And, and I'm sure it varies from campaign to campaign and from game to game, right? And, and But I think that's an important thing to have uh, an important conversation or an important touch point to have when you are starting to play D&D to sit down with a group and say, well, it's medieval, right? Or it's, you start with right. Renaissance Europe or whatever it is you're starting with, right? And, and I think you and I generally want to start with like medieval, you know, Europe or medieval yeah. England in particular. That's the text, right? And I always go back to what is it, page, uh, it's in the introduction to the, the very first D&D book. It, it explicitly does say that. It says, um, um, uh, uh, we're doing fantasy, fantastic medieval war gameplay. Well, the scope need not be restricted to the medieval. Um, it could stretch from the prehistoric to the imagined future, but such expansion is recommended only at such time as the possibilities in the medieval aspect have been thoroughly explored. So clearly the, the medieval is the, um, the core of where yeah. D&D is. And it says, it says right there that you could do whatever you want as part of the same mix. So you get, you get a very mixed message in that sentence. 
<laughs> you know, that's a that's very fantastic. mixed message in that sentence. It is. Thoroughly yeah, explore medieval first, but before he even gets there, it's like, of course, you're going to expand it to everything else also. I mean, I don't know exactly how you how you completely explore the medieval, frankly, but. Um... Yeah, right. Like, I mean, if you think of the, if you if you look at the historic basis of the or how D&D came about as a game in general, right, is rooted mm -hmm. in a specific setting, right? It starts with Chainmail, right, which was a yep. war game for playing historic medieval warfare, right? And then you get the fantasy supplement of, okay, well, we want medieval historic, but I want a dragon or I want a wizard in there as well. Chuck that in there, right? And then, and then yeah, and I mean, heck, it's right, right? It's right on the cover of the box, right? Rules for fantastic medieval war games campaigns playable right. with paper and pencil and miniature figure, right? They're on the, on the cover. So, so yeah, I, I generally I want to start with medieval, but that's that in of itself can be a wide range of time periods, and and some play some games stretch it right. Uh, the other major fantasy RPG I've played is Warhammer, and that's a little more I think if you look at the historic basis, a little more towards Renaissance than than medieval, right? It's a, just a little more forward. And I've certainly played plenty of D and D games where the discussion comes up of should we or should we not have firearms, right? Does firearm technology exist or not, right? And by the book, it does not. But it seems like a pretty common thing that people want to chuck in. Not, maybe not common, but easy, right? Yeah, I want an arquebus. Dan, what D&D book does the arquebus show up in? Do you know? Uh, by that name. Uh, uh, mm. <laughs> I'm not sure by that <laughs> name. Um, might possibly third edition, uh, possibly. Um, third? I, thought, I thought maybe it was in... Um, um, oh now, gosh. first edition has first, first edition has the connection to the Boot Hill Western game, right? So they say you can send your characters forward or bring characters backward, and here's the rules where you're going to interface with, um, you know, eight, late 1800s Wild West guns and how they interact with your D and D fighters and stuff like that. Um, and there is, uh, you know, there's there's a it's funny because you, you mentioned that in the original D&D rules, there's, there's um, or at least in first edition, there's specific text saying, like, conventional firearms, gunpowder won't work. Gunpowder won't chemically work in our world. So even if your players get clever, time travel forward, bring it back chemically, right, the, the gunpowder won't work. Um, and I then, didn't realize that. Wait, wait where, does that, where yeah. does that show up? Yeah, first edition DM's guide, it says that. Hmm. I'd have to I'd have to hunt I'd have to hunt exactly where, but it says that someplace. Um, and then simultaneously, it might be in the it might possibly be in the Boot Hill conversion section. And then simultaneously, uh, Gary has a beloved. I don't know if this was somebody's player character, beloved character named Merlin in his Greyhawk campaign that's totally allowed to break that rule, and so he shows up in the campaign box as a quasi deity. Um, and it's a uh, Merlin uh, is prone to carry technological weapons, variously called 45s or six shooters, which he is able to employ with both his left and his right hands. <laughs> and he's, he's got a magic aura that counteracts the, the, the normally gunpowder doesn't work. <laughs> right. And then, and then it also, so there's your, there's your Mary Sue right there. And then he also goes on and says, when casting spells, Merlin is prone to intermix technological terminology with his incantations, sometimes with surprising results. Thus, in casting a stinking cloud or a wall of fog, he might conjure into, a, into being a strange engine which gushes forth the desired results. Um, it's even possible that he can cast more than spell, one spell per round uh, by the art of science! Exclamation <laughs> mark. Wait, so again, wait, a little bit of a mixed message. Remind, remind me what text we're looking at here. This is the uh, the Greyhawk box set. Gotcha. 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 Nice. And he's also this character is also referenced in the um, uh, through the looking the Alice in Wonderland adventures that connect with uh, Castle Greyhawk. See, I always, I definitely, and this is this is my poor memory coming out, but like. When I think of the word arquebus, I swear that the first time I encountered that word was a D&D source book. And I thought that it was going to be Unearthed Arcana because, of course, there is a bunch of, like, they do introduce some unusual weapons in that book, right? You get your, your sap and your 
uh, I don't True. know, uh, your, your staff sling and your whip and, you know, kind of uh, unusual weaponry. I, I just I just cracked open the, the PDF and did a quick search. And the word Arquist does appear in the text, although just as a historical right? note in the, in the polearm appendix. <laughs> so <laughs> not, not statted or anything. But I, I'm certain there's a second edition book somewhere that has an Arquibus in it. I'm sure. Yeah, I think you, I, I'm sure you're right about that. Challenge, um, challenge to our uh, uh, our viewers here. If you're in the chat and you know the answer to this, where where does Arquibus first appear? Oh wait, Disparal's telling us maybe it's in the second. I mean, if I'm reading this right, second edition player's handbook maybe. Um. Anyway, regardless. Impressive. Yep. Also. Yep. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kamikaze Mark, for pointing out Snarf Quest. Yep, yep, Snarf Quest, of course. Yeah, you've got some. I mean, there's a yeah, robot. Right. There's a character's a robot in Snarf Quest. But yeah, there's also, uh, you know, a, a wizard with a, with a six shooter and a motorcycle. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's right there. You know, let me, okay, 50th anniversary. Let's look. I want to look at places in the, the first ever original DD text where I would argue that there are anachronisms. Um, yeah, so we'll pull up, we'll pull up volume one from 1974. <laughs> and, uh, the first example, Paul has already anticipated. <laughs> Paul <laughs> knew what I was going to say here already. So if you pull up the, um, the, the red dot there, that's the original yep. D&D equipment list, right? And the, the first thing that I always point to, like Paul said, is that flask of oil. And, um, in the, in the DMs book, there's a whole, a whole rule set for, um, what would happen if you set your oil on fire and either throw it or put it in a pool to ward off the monsters. And uh, just like Paul said, um, uh, we would both argue that that's, um, uh, Gary was thinking about kerosene, uh, which was something that was branded in the 1800s. And uh, lamp oil wouldn't, wouldn't do that. Normal lamp oil wouldn't do that. So I've seen a lot of games do that and always kind of irritates me. And the other thing on that initial list, of course, is uh, iron rations. And that hmm. is a reference to uh, what was called the Iron Ration for World War I armies, where they carried a little bit of emergency food in a tin can. And only, only if your army got cut off from your normal supply route and were in an emergency situation, then you'd get the order to break open your Iron Ration. And that was you were on your last legs at that point when you, when you opened the tin can. So that seems to be like a misunderstanding of what that meant, I guess, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I mean, um, canning certainly. I don't think anybody is thinking mm -hmm. that canning exists in D and T, right? Or in a D and T setting, right? That's, that's unusual, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've talked, we've covered the, the oil stuff a lot. I'm sure there's another episode where we talk about about the oil, but we'll just just to re quickly recover that because I see some chatter about it in the in the chat going on. That, that of course lamps and lamp oil I, we think existed, but it was like a whale blubber or a vegetable based oil, mm -hmm. which is which is not combustible or not. Um, what's the word I want? It doesn't explode. <laughs> so right, you need a wick, um, right? And, and, and right, there you go. Right, yeah, right. So you need a wick to draw it out to, to cause flame. So just like pouring, dousing somebody in that and like holding a, a flame to them is not going to cause them to ignite, right? It's not going to happen, right? Um. So um, yeah, yeah, that is interesting that that appears there in that list, and 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 then has created this trope that we see consistently throughout D and D play of like like I douse them in my lamp oil and I light them on fire. I don't know, cinematic, I suppose. Or throw it, throw it like a like a Molotov cocktail, of course. Yep, yep. Uh, apparently, Dan, the Arquebus is listed in Chainmail, Chainmail, page twenty-seven. Oh. Uh, um yeah uh that makes there you go sense. been around forever <laughs> that's fantastic yes you are you are correct good good great catch great catch there um yeah. well, that didn't make you, the step uh, forward into D, &D. Hmm? yeah yeah didn't didn't, didn't, didn't make, make the step it. forward into D, D so you can't find a D, &D damage list like for original D, &D so but great catch Great job. Now, of course, Chainmail has heavy cannons and it has bombards and all this kind of stuff. So Chainmail has a bunch of gunpowder weapons. Um, and like we said, the, the the mechanics for that is exactly how you get your lightning bolt in D&D, &D, but it was reskinned by the time you got there. Um, yeah. and, then, and wait, and this, let me look at a couple more things. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, you want that, that list back up? Let me, let me look at a couple more things in original D and D. If you go to the, the the next one that I've got an orange dot on, you look look at the spell list. The spell list has got some things that are clearly anachronisms. The first one that always that always irritates me is in original D and D the spell ESP or extrasensory perception. Right, that's a mm -hmm. term that wasn't coined until the 1930s. Um, so like in my games, I really, really, and it kind of stands out, it's, it's an acronym for a spell. Mm. So personally, I really wish that they'd called that read minds or something like that initially. Um, yeah. Teleport <laughs> is also a modern term, um, uh, largely from a science fiction book. Disintegrate is another term that basically didn't exist until the 1900s, actually, until the 20th century. And all those yeah. kinds of things pop up in either parapsychology or science fiction, um, arguably maybe telekinesis, uh, the term would be in the same category. Possibly uh, like a first edition has a spell called clone that might be in that category. Um, there's also the, uh, what is it? The um, fifth, the, near the end of the fifth level spell, there's a, there's a spell called feeble mind. And that is a term that was a psychological term of art, like in the late 1800s. Hmm. Um, didn't didn't exist in English until the, 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 the early modern English period. And then uh, the other thing in that same list, cloud kill. Uh, cloud kill is basically just chlorine gas from World War One, right? The, the hmm. color, the description, the behavior is all basically... Uh, a description of chlorine gas from the First World War. No, I mean, so, as, as we get into that, I would say that there is there is this tradition, I think, of of saying, okay, well, we have a, a medieval setting, or we're adding magic, and we want magic to be this powerful, otherworldly, inexplicable thing. And it's, I think mm -hmm. it's very common to say, well, we'll just take a technology that exists and magic it up, right? Like, I, I remember... Plenty of times explaining the spell message, which I'm not sure is in this list or when that shows up. And you're like, message is basically like you have walkie talkies, right? Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's just it's just a magic that emulates a modern technology. Just it's heck just like light is like I having a flashlight, right? Like I feel like a lot of spells to me sense like they have that that kind of origin of like, well, let's take a technological advance and let's just reskin it magic. So I'm not surprised to point. see spells whose names just just do it outright right in the name, right? Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, exactly. Now, arguably, and of course, you could also point the original D&D monster list. You have monsters and at the end. It says, here's some other stuff you could throw in. And it ends with robots and androids. <laughs> you know, and, and it says, well, they're, they're self-explanatory. We don't need to tell you about that. So you can just make up your robots and androids and throw it in. Of course, of course, that could, that's yeah. going to be part of your D&D game. Or call them golems. Call them golems if you want. We're we're, we're cool with that. <laughs> I mean, it's very strange to me that um, that that this era of D and D, the very early era of D and D, that you you maybe want to, you know, nitpick anachronisms, but on the other hand, ch chuck sci-fi in there wholesale, right? I don't want my lamp oil to be uh, to light up and and ignite like kerosene. But yeah, you could travel to Mars. That's cool. Sure, there's <laughs> there's weird monsters on Mars, and you can go fight them. It seems very arbitrary. Like, at what point are we saying that it fits the milieu or not? I mean, again, for me, I I I, I can distinguish between stuff that's uh, common in the campaign world substrate versus stuff that you're going to run into in the supernatural realm right. and uh, so i'm certainly more uh, bothered by the flammable oil being on the equipment list you know at will for the player characters versus something that's inflammable or <clears throat> acting like the human torch in the dungeon and similarly like you know i don't mind having obviously there's going to be dragons in the campaign world i don't want my player character to be able to decide i have a pet dragon at the outset well that right. seems to me okay, so bothers you're, you're, you're really talking about like the accessibility of magic right like one of the things yes. that makes magic yeah. so interesting is how inaccessible it is right that that you have right. to have undergo specific training or go through unusual you know some some kind of tr trials to get access to it 
-hmm. right? Like I love Gandalf lighting up the top of his staff to create light. But if I walk into a town and every shop and every hovel has a magical light, it goes, it feels less special, right? Yeah. <laughs> it feels just a little, okay. And, and it feels a bit more, out, especially when it's a technology replacement like that. And it feels like, right, well, we're, it's right. not even magic anymore. It's just technology, right? As someone pointed out in the chat, and they they well known that one of the, no, one of the things that I do in my gaming, of course, you know, D and D starts out with the continual light spell, which is like at um, second level, right? There it is on the second level list, right there, in number nine, and you know, totally acts basically like Gandalf's light spell. It's pretty, it's pretty clear, um, but by the book, it is permanent; it doesn't have a duration on it, and I think that's a big problem because that implies that a wizard can wizards can go around and make these permanent lights forever um and so probably the, the the first edit that i make to my spell list is continual light isn't per permanent it continues for a week you know a week or a month something like that but as yeah. soon as you start having really accessible permanent spells you, you you wind up in this situation where the the whole world starts looking different it's interesting because I feel like it's forcing us down this road to ask questions that i feel like most people don't ask about their dnd campaign world which is like how recent is magic? How many magicians are there? Right? What yes. is, how does one become a magician? What is the accessibility to it? Right? I think that's really fascinating. And what interesting questions to ask. Wouldn't it be interesting to run a campaign where like, well, magic was just discovered 50 years ago. It's just it's brand new. <laughs> we only just found it. Wouldn't interesting. that be an interesting yep. campaign setting? Or, or not even or five years ago. Just, we literally just discovered that this exists. There's like three people who could do this in the world. Kind of want to play that game. Nice. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that doesn't work but, like but, I expected. But, but converse, conversely, I don't want to play the other game. And this is, and I feel, unfortunately, this is, I think, kind of where the setting has evolved over the past 50 years. Now we get into like, what is 50 years of D&D &D being out ha done? You have these campaign worlds where magic has existed for hundreds of years and there are right. thousands or or even millions of magicians in the world and now it is just we're in this world of like i don't know it just magic has just replaced technology and it's not really that special or different anymore it's, it's different it's just different than yeah I where agree. we're at right now it's like it's kind of like the renfair effect and this is this is my 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 gripe about or how i would classify the movie a knight's tale right i i believe a knight's tale was made by and for people who attend renfairs that is it has oh, more to do with oh, renfair oh. jousting than anything else right oh um, great. <laughs> right i i seriously i watch that movie and i wonder i know jousting tournaments were a thing historically but is this anywhere close to what they were? I'm not sure. And I, I suspect no, the answer is probably no. Probably nothing right. like this. This is, this is more like the kind of jousting you see at Ren Fairs. And what is a Renaissance Fair, right? It's when I first learned about it, I was like, oh, it's this neat like re recreation of this historic period. We're going to pretend like it's the Renaissance. But if you go now, today, to a Ren Fair, I'd say most of them, it's what is the historic period is really hard to tell. I don't know. Is it a historic period? Basically, anything vaguely fantasy or vaguely, you know, has an aesthetic of, a, a, you know, a, a medieval to Renaissance period is admissible at a Ren fair. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's witchy and it's fairy and it's, uh, you know, it's knights and, you know, the steampunk people are there. Like, it's just, it's just oh, everything. Really? There's just, there's no rules. I think it's it's the Renaissance Fair. I don't know. It's jousting As someone who's never gone like... to a Renaissance Fair, I'm glad you told oh, no. that. A, I wouldn't have thought about that for A Knight's Tale, and B, I, I wasn't aware that it expanded like that. Fascinating. It is, yeah. I, I think it is its own, just like, just like D, it's kind of like, you know, it ate its own dog food for too long. Kind of yeah, just yeah. like the D setting, right? Of like, yeah. Yeah. it's so self-referential now, I don't know what the heck it is other than Ren Fair. I, but I will say, these days, and maybe it's just the circles I travel in, it's rare for me to say go to a Halloween party where there isn't at least one person who isn't dressed in Ren Fair. They're like, what are you? Okay. And then they struggle to say, oh, what are you dressed as? Well, you know, my Renaissance costume, my Ren Fair costume. I'm like, okay, but okay. What, yeah. okay. what are you dressed as? The answer is <laughs> Ren Fair. I'm dressed as Ren Fair person. <laughs> that's, that's all you can say about it. <laughs> I'm dressed as Ren Fair cosplayer. Um, yeah, basically. 
I'm dressed as a cosplayer. That's great. Um, <laughs> that's great. Okay, I gotta. I want to talk a little bit about the the pulp literature that was a forerunner to D and D. That certainly inspired you know Gary Gygax and everybody else at the outset. Um, and I'm not talking so much Tolkien. Um, but the, the short story pulp fantasy stuff that, you know, Gary always said was the more fundamental thing to his thinking, like Lovecraft and Howard and Liber and all those kinds of things. And at least to me, I mean, I, I hope I'm not completely off the deep end here, but to me, I, I perceive in those, you know, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, um, uh, pulp fantasy magazine type stuff, uh, a, a rather regular movement to, puncture the the supernatural magic stuff so we're you know publishing in an era that's stepping into the atomic age and there's a whole lot of scientific um um discoveries that are happening around relativity and all this kind of thing and i feel there's a kind of a thread through those the, those those pulp literature stories that commonly reinterpret magic or supernatural legends in terms of modern scientific rational um technology and we've talked about that in some prior episodes like that um starting with lovecraft right lovecraft is really the root of most of that kind of stuff and he was directly you know directly interacting with a lot of the other authors and for me you know growing up the first time i got lovecraft obviously it's in the horror section of the bookstore and that actually kept me away from it for a long time when i cracked open lovecraft i was like this isn't hard science fiction it's like you know, there's empires. There's no ghosts. You know, it's 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 things. You know, it's it's alien beings from a different you know evolutionary path in the same cosmos. Um, and the, you know, the, and the scary thing is they they don't care about you, or they could infect you, and they're not thinking about it. They don't. They not have a motivation that even interacts with human beings. You know, conceivable, but that's that's a that's that that's what things could be like. Um, so that kind of, uh, recasting, you know, if there are cults that, you know, considered them to be gods, they're not quite right. That's not exactly right. And it's being recast <laughs> in yeah. rational, um, science ways. You get that in Liber a lot. Fafford mm -hmm. and the Grey Mouser frequently don't believe that there's magic being cast at them and they routinely go, oh, he probably used like mirrors or he had something stuck up his sleeve or it's at some kind of smoke smoky we got gassed right we got gassed and we were hallucinating <laughs> possibly happened there is the um you know the, the famous story uh by liber called stardock and it 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 it's right on the label it's right on the label what's going to be happening and so they spend the whole novella trying to get to the top of this peak and spoiler at the end there is a, there's a normally invisible craft on top of the peak and in that case baffer and the gray mouse go i guess this was like a star that the gods failed to launch i guess but for the for the you know reader it's very pretty clear what it is um up on top yeah. there and then for me there's a bunch of places in howard with the conan <coughs> story where arguably you know he's he's confronting someone who's a wizard and they pull out a device and they use the device on, on Conan and Conan's like, oh, there's a wizard using magic against me because Conan doesn't know any better. But I think you could very easily read between the lines. Um, and, you know, like in the Scarlet Citadel, there's a place where he's attack Conan's attacking the wizard Sotha and Sotha throws a shimmering globe that explodes with a flash of hellish fire that Conan barely dodges. And, you know, I could imagine that easily being like an alchemical grenade or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting in the in that pulp that that pulp fiction that arguably your the the author is trying to communicate that maybe magic doesn't exist and that this is early technology being misinterpreted by your barbaric um protagonists um uh, point of view. And it's interesting because I think about if you tried to have D and D be that same thing, and I think you and I, Paul, we've both run some games where there's an obvious thing that is driving the narrative that the characters 
don't know, but the players do, right? And it's kind of fun to play along with the players, accepting that I know there's some kind of technology here, but my character doesn't. We all have to pretend that we don't understand what it is. But I'm guessing that that probably wasn't viable long-term for D&D, that, you know, keeping things at a distance of like, we know what's happening, but we're not supposed to talk about it and our characters don't know. We can kind of maintain that like with a small group or like for one session, but you probably couldn't maintain that forever. And so I think that's why, you know, D&D had to accept that magic is real and the spells are really magic. And if you want something technological, it's really going to be magic now. Um, and that what what would work in the narrative pulp fantasy probably wouldn't work in a, a more mass market, you know, game form, um, which is why we are here. But but right, right at the outset, you know, arguably the the pulp fiction that inspired all this maybe it didn't even have magic. Maybe it was technology all along. Yeah, for sure, and and certainly. I feel like you also see in pulp a lot of the, you know, person from normal modern time visiting the supernatural and trying to explain it that way. Maybe sometimes failing, maybe sometimes succeeding, right? Of like, oh, it must be, it must be this, it must be that, right? Right. Um, and our viewers have have other really good examples from uh, yeah. Howard as well. And uh, and thanks for reminding me, you guys. So Vance is saying the uh, in Tower of the Elephant, the elephant's clearly an alien. Um, right. And I agree with that. And Kamikaze Mark is also saying that the dragon in Red Nails is clearly a dinosaur. Right. Great points. Just fun. That's a fun game to play, honestly. Um, yeah, I I do it myself, frankly. In I'm, I think I'm playing with the same thing in the um, Fearful End scenario I wrote called Mazes of Monsters, where I'm asking the players to right. play characters who have never heard of this game called Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> but they assume it's got some kind of weird satanic influence and it's causing, you know, people to join cults and kill each other or whatever. And it is delightful, I think, to force players into that position of, I know what this is, but I'm going to pretend I don't. Right? That's that's fun. I don't know. That's enjoyable. I think it, I, th I feel like it's probably short term, right? You probably can't go for, you, you couldn't make a 50-year game True. form where everybody's second hand pretending that it's something that it's not right yeah. you're going to advertise D and D and say this is a game where you play wizards and warriors right not where you play people who think that they're wizards and warriors in a world that really has technology that nobody understands you're not gonna <laughs> that would be a much harder sell i think <laughs> I mean, I think this is this is like I, don't know, I could just say this largely in fiction that that there's a certain type of fiction that likes to pose the we don't understand this and we're we're going to discover more questions than answers, right? Look at um, the TV shows Lost or the X Files, right, or or any anything along that lines, right? I feel like it's very interesting at first and it gets old quickly, right? Yes. And by the time you get Thank into you. like six or seven seasons of we still don't understand what's happening. Like there's now there's more questions and I don't, like, I'm just tired, man. <laughs> just <laughs> resolve I've, something, please. Yeah. I've become pretty sensitive to like second season, right? If the, if the first season, and I, I am thinking lost here, frankly, the, the, the first season you can, you can, you can bring me along. I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. And I think I've, I've become, as soon as I, um, discover as soon as i perceive that the writers don't really have an answer to this i tune out pretty quickly and the uh the newer version of battlestar galactica um does the same thing for me is that you know the intro bit of uh the uh the cylons have a plan and i think just a couple episodes and i'm like i don't think they do <laughs> I don't think they do. I'm highly skeptical. I don't. I don't think that you've got anything to back that up. And I, I became less interested pretty rapidly, frankly. Um, I think you know nowadays, right? It's more common. Maybe in the streaming era, it's more common for creators to plan out, you know, a limited number of seasons, like maybe three. True. Right. Yeah. Plan out two yeah. or three seasons. We're going to come to a closure. You can extend it or shorten it by maybe one or two. And to, I'm I'm so glad that that's the case nowadays that we can we can usually get accomplish that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. 
I totally agree. I think that is the the reason you have. I mean, I feel like the first major thing I saw exercise that I feel like for me was Breaking Bad, right? Where it's like, oh no, no, there's they have an ending. They have an ending in mind, and they're going there, and we're going to hit it. It's going to reach there. Yeah, and I th- I do think that is an improvement. There, I mean, it's it's a really old show now, but there was a show called, I think on ABC years and years ago. It's called Murder One, and um, the it followed one single court case for the whole season, right? And obviously, court cases don't you know the law and order don't go like up and down within a day, right? So it followed a whole one single court case for a whole season. I thought it was really really excellent, and then season two, you have nowhere to go. Huh. Right. There's they, they, yeah, they, they, I think they had to change the cast and it just like pfft, nothing, nothing's happening after that. But it had a wonderful first season. To, to bring us back to RPGs, I have the same issue, frankly, with the original classic uh, Deadlands. It's a great concept. I love I love the setting. I love the game. Yeah. There is right off the bat. If you read those those source books, um, there is a big secret, a big reveal that is coming. And. The, the problem with that is like, how long do you draw it out for? And then yeah. what do you do once it's revealed? Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you're going to sit down and play classic deadlands, which I would love to do, uh, I think that I would probably plan out, we're going to play this long and then the players are going to know everything. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then I either have a plan for what comes next or we, yeah. we're just done and we just walk away. That's the end. I think that some of the high concept uh, D&D settings in the second edition era possibly suffered the same the same way. Like I'm thinking of Dark Sun, I think mm-hmm. uh, possibly suffered the same way of like you're on a quest to change what the world is like. And if that happens now, the camp now it's not the Dark Sun campaign setting anymore. Um, so I can I, I, I those kinds of high concept campaign settings, I think have limited duration, just exactly the way you're talking about that. And it, and at least for me, you know, because up until that point, uh, you know, the campaigns were said, we, this can last forever. This can just go on and on forever. So it's even now it's uh, have, I have to adjust my mindset to be, this is a campaign that has a limited, limited lifespan and there's a big reveal and it's not that campaign anymore. Yep. Yep. You know, if I could bring us back to our anachronisms, I feel like I saw this in um, a, a, a novel series that I really, really enjoyed, um, uh, whose name I'm not struggling to bring to my my lips. Um, Guardians of the Flames. Uh, Guardians of the Flame. There you go. There you go. You got it. Like, like, like. Look at that man. That's amazing. <laughs> Guardians of the Flame. Right. You have modern, you know, current, real world people thrust into a fantasy setting. They go. How do we survive? How do we thrive? How do we get out of here? They invent guns, right? They're like, we know how black powder works. We know how guns work. They invent guns. Great. Now they have this huge advantage in this world. As the novels progress, the secret somehow gets out. Mm-hmm. Somebody mm-hmm. else figures it out. Now you've got bad guys with guns. Now everybody's got guns. And now I'm like, eh, are we still in a fantasy novel? Everyone has guns. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, like, yeah. Eh, eh. Doesn't really feel. Agreed. Doesn't feel like a fantasy novel anymore. Like maybe you should Agreed. just end. Agreed. That series is a. It's a harder to. That, that series is harder to to follow as it goes on. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Let me. I, before we get done, I want to look at. Uh, and, mm. I, and this is going to be a little bit of a puzzle. Uh, maybe for you, Paul. Maybe for viewers. I want to look at some examples of of D and D art with anachronisms. Cool. And as as some people have pointed out, um, like if you bring up the uh, the expedition of the Barrier Peaks cover. Right, one of the very one of the er, we've talked about this before. One of the earliest adventures published for Dungeons and Dragons: uh, Expedition of the Barrier Peaks. Spoiler: uh, the you know the 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 weird uh, the weird metallic dungeon that's popped up with the completely exotic monsters is a spaceship that's crash landed in D and D world, um, and it has you know it's got laser guns, and you can you can possibly have your character pick up one of the laser guns and maybe figure out how to use it as is happening on the cover there. And what was that? It was like the fourth adventure ever published for D&D or something like that. So there's that. Huh. And then if you look at, let me see here. How about the one that's got um, the, the the dark elves on it? 
And, and you know, it's funny because all these examples of art we're looking to look at here, all three of them are from 1980. So right around this era of, of 1980. So this is a piece from, um, uh, the, it's the second version of the Descent into the Depths adventure where the uh, characters are going into the under earth and they're combating the drow for the, for the first time ever. And of course the drow worship the, the spider queen. They're all spider themed and like that. So this is a piece in 1980 by Bill Willingham. Um, mm -hmm. Can you see what doesn't belong? What doesn't belong in this picture? <laughs> do you see it? Yeah, I, I do. Do you, do you want to give our viewers a minute or shall I just spit it out? Spit it out. Um, what what yeah, is it? Yeah. So in the in, in well, in the bottom left, we have uh, several superhero character references, right? You've got a chest with Spider-Man's face on it, and Captain America's shield in it, and uh, a mask that I don't totally. Remember. Was that Daredevil? Who is that? Somebody's mask. I, I, that's either that's either Hawkeye or it's the earliest version of the Iron Man armor. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. so, so Bill, Bill Willingham, uh, went on after doing D and D art to be a very successful comic book author, uh, artist and author. Um, and mm -hmm. so he did, uh, he did <laughs> indie stuff. Uh, he did a lot of work for DC vertigo and a little bit of work for Marvel. Um, but here he is, um, uh, injecting, in injecting a little bit of, uh, Marvel stuff. Uh, you know, I was looking at, uh, Janelle Jaquay's no, earliest adventure. I assume, I assume, Dan. I assume Dan that this is just this is just a a, a, a joke, a wink, an in reference, right? That there's not like stats for any of the stuff in the game. That this is just the art. Correct. Having Correct. Fun. You're right. Okay. You're right. <laughs> That's good. You're right. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting that you know Janelle Jaquay's early adventure does explicitly call out that you know th that specifically says this is going to work like Marvel Comics Human Torch. Uh, the the I guess the Gremlin monsters in there. Um, nice. which, which was kind of startling for I, what's technically the second ever adventure published for, for any role-playing game, frankly. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. the other thing might be a little bit more subtle. Um, so the, the other art piece is, I think, by Jeff D., same year, in the, uh, the Monster and Treasure assortment. I think that was the back cover. What doesn't... What's the, what's the, surprise, what's the surprise feature there? Uh, I'm assuming again. This is a this is a uh, comic book reference. Is that is that Magneto's helmet in the in the treasure Great. chest? Okay, I thought that would be harder. <laughs> That's exactly right. yeah. Again, from Marvel Comics. So there was a lot of there were there was a lot of people right being influenced by Marvel Comics in this era. You get that here. You get that in Willingham. Um, uh, some of the um, quite a bit of the original D and D art was kind of sort of traced from Doctor Strange comics. Um, so there was there was there was a lot of Marvel influence in early D and D, and I, I, I kind of I I took a long time before I realized that was Magneto's helmet. I was looking at this for years and years before that dawned on me. I mean, but also I feel like it's not like that as as far as anachronisms in in D and D go, that almost doesn't bother me. I could easily see putting a magic item in D and D that is a helmet that gives you powers of telekinesis. It's a helm of telekinesis, Dan. That's what that is. Sure. Great. Great. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Of course, telekinesis is an is a, is an anachronistic word to use, but but yeah, sure. uh, we, we we should totally do that. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> I could I could easily see a fair amount of like superhero powers being translated into magic items in D anD D pretty seamlessly. Yeah. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And, well, uh, and you know, a number of the spells are. You know, adds a lot of ease at the table too. Of like, okay, you get this this magical helmet; it gives you control over metal objects, and you could just be like, you know, basically you're Magneto when you put this. Say that to your you player. You know, this is a really low. good. Great. Point. I know exactly what you're saying. I understand 100 percent what it does. Yeah, yeah, perfect. I agree. This is a really good point about whether it's you know, even something that's arcane and exotic for the character, should it be complicated to communicate to the player? Probably not. Mm. I, I like it. I like it being easy to communicate to the player and pick up and just run with it rather than being confused and having to having to decipher it on the player's end. Right. So that ultimately, I know we're, we're nearly out of time here, Dan, but I think I feel like this brings me to the, the main point I would say about anachronisms in D&D, &D, which is they're totally fine. I think they're great even. I just think you need to be intentional about them. Don't let them just kind of backslide into your setting. That's where it gets weird. That's where I get unhappy, right? If, if you're going to have a 
town in your in your in your D and D campaign where every single person has access to magic light and it's just common and ordinary and everyone has it. Own that. Think it through. Think how it impacts your campaign. Make it a big deal or make it important. Make it an important choice, not just an arbitrary one. I, I would like to argue with this about Paul, but more or less that was my takeaway as well. Is I, I think a little a little bit of restraint, a little bit of forethought, and a little bit of of restraint, or what I guess Tim Gunn would call tasteful editing, I think would really improve things and not scattershot it all through your campaign setting and not, you know, I've seen some people go, I want to go full Wahoo, maximum Wahoo all the time. That's what D&D should be about. And I don't think so. There should be some contrast, right? There should be there should be some drama and some comedy and each one heightens the other, right? And there should be some, you know, basic, you know, hard scrabble peasant life on in, in some places and there should be supernatural alien in, in incursions in other places. And that contrast is really what makes it, what heightens it. Um, so, so I agree a, a little bit of tasteful restraint and not, not scattering permanent light all over the place, I think really, really benefits the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and have, have some fun with it, right? Have, have a, sure. Have a fantasy city that is, powered by magic and you know is full of magical lights and levitating platforms to transport people and all that stuff and then hit it with a freaking magic blackout man that's fun mm -hmm. <laughs> right somebody pops an anti-magic shield on that city oh no that, oh, right. now what are they gonna do and everybody freaks out like that okay now we're now we're doing something interesting but if it's just there and it's just like, yeah whatever no big deal and it's not important then what's the point nice nice I'd play that. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think I think we just kind of segued naturally here into our final thoughts, Dan. Do you have any other final thoughts to share? I think it's been a, it's interesting how this how this can crop up because because I because I, I thought there's at least three ways this can crop up. Is one you could just be like like lazy and misunderstanding. And you know what? When when I wrote my first dungeon and I was making when I was like ten, I will confess like the 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 kitchens had refrigerators and sinks because I I just that's what, that's what's in a kitchen and I thought right and it was like years later I went back and was like whoops that was that was that was a mistake uh, you know two you can you know maybe you like the fun house surprise uh, dungeon and three maybe you're conjuring the pulp fantasy of like puncturing the magic I don't think that's probably lesser lesser used in D&D &D play. Um, so think about why this is happening. Um, uh, you know, try, try to, if, you know, try, think ahead. What is, is this going to expand um, Guardians of the Flame style to infect and change my whole campaign setting and come up with a reason why it's, why it's stuck in the supernatural part of your realm, I think would, you know, prevents a lot of problems downstream. Yeah, or 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 you know, at least limit it to the exciting, interesting supernatural part, right? Like a city full of magical lights is not nearly as exciting as a setting where there's no magical light at all, and then you enter a dungeon and and every room is illuminated with a magical light. That's interesting, right? Now you're why why what you know, and then and then of course there's a play with it because then you enter the room that where it's broken and. Something or there's a there's a pitch black dungeon and you need to there's there's a very small number of things that will cast light far enough to help you and then the players will be really driven to go get that thing um, and it'll become a focus yep. of play whereas if it's everywhere then it becomes uninteresting. Awesome. Uh, viewers, if you have other thoughts of anachronisms in D and D, other examples that we haven't thought of or ways to use it in interesting and exciting ways or complaints about ways it's used in a lazy and uh, um, disappointing ways, please, uh, you know, let us know. Drop us your thoughts in the comments of the YouTube video. We'd love to hear from you. And maybe that'll spin up a new conversation for us for another episode down the road. Definitely. And of course, remember, you can like, follow and subscribe to us. We're on YouTube and Twitch and Facebook and GitHub and TikTok. We have the handle Wandering DMs and all the sites. So please wreck that like button. Indeed. I'm sorry. Uh, if you prefer to listen to our, our show in audio-only podcast format, you can do so. Uh, those podcasts are available on our website at wanderingdms.com and through all major podcast carriers such as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Pocket Cast, 
pocket attic, podcast attic, all kinds of places. If you are listening to this show right now on one of those third-party sites and they offer the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That helps us, helps other users find our show, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, huge thanks to our patrons who support the show all the time. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash DMs, and you'll see a couple different benefits, including access to our Discord server where the conversations about D&D and horror and science fiction, all kinds of stuff is happening all the time. And like we Paul said at the top of the show, uh, you'll also get access to our live video after chat that we do every Sunday. Um, I have other stuff that we didn't get fit in the hour about anachronisms in D&D, and we'd love to hear your thoughts as well as about how to work it in your game. So Paul and I will be there um, later today. Uh, we'll have other stuff maybe coming up in a couple weeks on the channel, hopefully. And don't forget that we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.